Welcome to our listeners to our first episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. My name is Sara Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Monarch. I'm very excited to be joined by Dr. Jack Jordan for today's episode on Suicide Postvention 101. Today, Dr. Jordan will be focusing on helping our listeners understand what suicide postvention is and why it's so important to suicide prevention efforts. This episode will set the foundation for our Suicide Postvention podcast series, which will allow listeners to select other episodes on advanced topics in suicide postvention. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jack. Uh, Could we have you provide a brief introduction of yourself to get us started? Sure, and thank you very much for inviting me to, uh, to do this. I'm very happy and pleased to be able to do this. I am a PhD clinical psychologist. Uh, I have been in private practice most of my uh, professional life. Uh, I'm, I'm actually, I describe myself as kind of an odd duck. I've, I've been in solo private practice for most of my uh, professional life, although I function in some ways like an academic in that I've done a fair amount of uh, publishing uh, in the field. And I have been a grief counselor, or I prefer the term grief therapist, for most of my uh, professional life. And over the last 20, maybe 25 years now, um, I have focused more, more and more specifically on working with suicide loss survivors, being people who have uh, been exposed to the suicide of someone close or important to them and are grieving that uh, uh, that loss. So that's, that's what the, the main focus of both my professional work, my writing, and my uh, training have been about. Well, we are so lucky to have you to really help our listeners kind of understand what suicide postvention is, as I think what is probably common to a lot of our listeners is this may be a new topic for them. So that's really the focus of today's episode, to really help set the stage um, and help kind of inform our audience. So starting out there, uh, could you just explain what suicide postvention is to those that are listening to the podcast? Sure. The language postvention, uh, the word postvention didn't always exist. It came out of a sort of a tripartite uh, division of thinking about the field of suicidology that's been around for a long time, although you don't hear this language quite as much as you used to, which was to talk about um, suicide prevention, suicide intervention, and then suicide postvention. And the word postvention was a word coined by Edwin Schneidman, who's the founder of uh, modern American suicidology. Suicide prevention is obviously focused around trying to prevent people from becoming uh, suicidal, and that can include anything from, from you know, very early intervention kinds of things, which we may talk a little bit about later on, to, you know, immediate things that we think might reduce the chances that someone might become suicidal. For example, I'm sure we'll talk about later in the podcast, um, doing good postvention is actually a form of suicide prevention for someone who's just been exposed to the uh, suicide of of somebody close to them. Suicide intervention usually refers to working with people who are already uh, suicidal and trying to reduce that suicidality um, and ensure the safety of the person who would be struggling with feeling suicidal. And then postvention essentially means uh, what we do after a suicide has happened 
and we could even broaden that to include um, after some suicidal behavior happens, even if there wasn't a completion of the suicide. Um, but mostly it is referred to after a suicide has happened, what can we do to mitigate, mitigate the harmful and negative uh, sequelae and effects of that on, on people in the social network around that person that's died by suicide, most particularly the immediate family and kin, but as I'm sure we'll talk about it, the, the circle of who we're paying attention to is widening beyond just immediate kin or family. Well, thank you so much for that broad overview and that introduction. One thing I wanted to ask you to talk a bit more about is why suicide postvention may get forgotten in suicide prevention programs. So you talked a bit about how many people are aware about suicide prevention broadly. We know we have some professional caregivers listening to the podcast, so they may be familiar with suicide interventions. But what is it about suicide postvention that may contribute to it not always being part of the full story? Well, I think first, a couple of reasons. Uh, one way that I understand this or explain it for myself is that uh, if you look at, at uh, suicidology and so intervention with um, suicidal uh, clients, that's mostly come out, come out of medicine and out of psychiatry. I mean, there are a lot, lot more people than just psychiatrists who work with suicidal patients, but the, the, the lead of it has come out of psychology and psychiatry, clinical psychology and psychiatry. Quite frankly, I, I believe in in medicine, um, there's a sort of, a, a, of an attitude that once uh, somebody is uh, terminally ill or is dying or has died, sort of there's nothing more that medicine can do for them. And so, unfortunately, many uh, medical professionals sort of see their job as done once once someone has is dying or has uh, died. I mean that's really why hospice formed um, is that is that the the healthcare system was doing a very poor job of caring for dying clients, and so uh, what um, what happened is that a separate uh, service within medical care um, had to develop called hospice care for people who were dying, but didn't deserve to be and shouldn't have been abandoned by the medical care system. So I think there's a bit of an attitude. Uh, I don't know how many medical people would agree with this, but um, that, well, well, when someone's died by suicide, there's nothing more that can be done. You know, our, our efforts need to be on preventing future suicides and not about the impact of suicide on people. But as I'll, I'll mention here now, and we can talk more about this later uh, if you want to, I think the evidence is overwhelmingly compelling now that exposure to the suicide of someone important uh, to you, um, particularly someone who's psychologically close, you feel psychologically close to, we know now increases the risk of suicidal behavior in those people who've been exposed. It's a little bit of a kind of a contagion or public health impact in which, in which suicidal behavior um, can spread. And exposure to it, particularly when we're talking about close relationships, uh, uh, it increases the risk of that, and there's compelling data about that now. So that's the overriding reason is that, as Edwin Schneidman said many years ago, um, postvention is prevention of future suicides. I think the second reason to do it is that is that it's, it's the morally and ethically right thing to do because it isn't just that it increases risk for suicide. There are a whole number of um, 
mental health and social consequences and sequelae of being exposed to um, suicide that we need to pay attention to because these can have both short-term and long-term um, impacts on people who've been exposed who are what we call suicide loss survivors. Although I would point out that suicide loss survivor, which is a kind of common language now, implies that we're talking about people who are grieving. And not all people uh, who have a, a negative effect from being exposed to suicide are grieving that loss. Uh, an example I like to use in trainings that I do is think about somebody who um, um, is standing on a subway platform and jump, jumps in front of a subway train and dies by suicide. Um, the driver of that train probably is not going to have a grief reaction unless it was a freak circumstance. They didn't know the person who died, but they may well develop, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder and be very disturbed about it and have trouble going back to their work, et cetera. Um, and so they, they need to be considered as someone who may be impacted by a suicide, even if it's not about grief, even though most of what we think about when we talk about suicide loss survivors is the grief reactions uh, that happen after a suicide has happened. Uh, so why has it been forgotten? I think that um, there's been, a, in essence, a preoccupation with, with let's prevent suicide, and people have not yet made that connection. It's been a soapbox that I've been on for a long time is that the field needs to be paying attention to postvention. If for no other reason, then, then it, it is good prevention um, um, activity, and um, um, it also is the right, the ethically or moral right thing to do. Yeah, I think those two reasons there, especially in combination with one another, really showcase the pivotal place that suicide postvention has. Um, and just good clinical care, but then also, like you said, the, the right thing to do. Kind of building on that and some of the things that you had mentioned, um, could you tell us a little bit more about the scope of impact after a suicide loss? So you had introduced there this idea of some people being exposed versus others being impacted versus others that particularly might be grieving. Can you help us understand that whole range? Uh, well, first of all, let, just a, a word about the, the, the scope of suicide, because I think many people are unaware of that. The, we now know that their suicide rates have been going up, unfortunately, in America over the last five to, uh, to ten years. Um, there are now more people who die in America of suicide than die in motor vehicle accidents. And there are um, about twice as many people who die in America from suicide as die from um, homicide. Um, even though, you know, if you look at the evening news, you would think that homicide is everywhere all the time and, and you don't hear much about suicide, but that's primarily because of the, the stigma attached to it and the, the wish by some survivors to not, you know, to keep it secret or hidden from the um, community. But suicide is, is a public health problem. In the United States, one that is increasing, and that one that we are learning that we can do things about if we will work collectively from a public health perspective to reduce it. Um, so, what's the scope of suicide survivorship, meaning people who have been exposed to suicide? Until pretty recently, we have not had very good data uh, uh, about that. Um, there has been some good research in the last, I would say, five, literally just five plus years about this. We, we now know that uh, probably about um, half of the U.S. population at some time during their 
lifetime will know somebody who dies by suicide. So that's one out of two Americans um, who are exposed. Um, if we're talking about including suicidal exposure to suicidal behavior, in other words, attempts, even if the person doesn't uh, die by the attempt, um, that's probably about two-thirds of Americans. So the majority of Americans have been exposed. And as I was just saying, there's, there's pretty compelling evidence now that exposure increases um, uh, risk. And it's not, it's not a, you know, an isolated phenomenon. People underestimate the amount of suicide and exposure to suicide because we, we don't hear much about it because of the, I think primarily because of the stigma, although the stigma is slowly being reduced, uh, at least in, uh, in America. Um, of the people who are exposed, again, we don't have very good or very substantial or multiple studies on this, but it's beginning to look like maybe about one in five of people who are exposed to the suicide of someone uh, close or important to them will go on to have um, psychological difficulties and will self-identify as a survivor, meaning somebody who will say, yes, I was really affected or impacted. Uh, by that in, in uh, negative kinds of ways. Edwin Schneidman many years ago said that, once said that uh, for every suicide there are six uh, survivors or people impacted. The problem with that is that it was a complete guesstimate. Um, he, bless his heart, he was, he was just guessing about that. The data now is looking more like for, for every suicide there are probably about um, uh, somewhere around 20 to 25 people um, who will be uh, impacted in some way to some degree. doesn't mean everybody will have a uh, prolonged grief reaction or will develop complicated grief, but maybe 20 to 25. And obviously that varies tremendously. You know, if a homeless person who was very isolated and didn't, uh, very reclusive, didn't have many social contacts and they die by suicide, the, the circle of people impacted by it may be much, much smaller than if a prominent minister in a, in a community church in a small town or a, uh, you know, a, a, a public figure dies by suicide in which there may literally be hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of people who are impacted by it. Great. And when we think about suicide postvention, who do you think suicide postvention should be for? Obviously, those that are, have that kind of psychologically meaningful kind of close relationship that you had talked about later. But would you also consider so suicide prevention being important for someone that was maybe just an acquaintance or worked with someone that died by suicide? How do you kind of define that area? Yeah, uh, potentially it's anyone who's exposed. And in fact, there's a new uh, graphic way of, of talking about this. This is a, a, a diagram that's in uh, a graphic that's in the uh, Postvention guidelines that were released by a task force that I was part of in uh, 2015, I believe, that was uh, commissioned by the uh, National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. Um, if you go to that site and then look at the, uh, the Suicide Loss Survivor Task Force, uh, you can find the guidelines and download the, down, download the guidelines. I think that, uh, uh, so the, the if you could visualize this, uh, uh, several concentric circles, I think this is a useful way to think about it. I believe Julie Serrell is the, uh, the lead author on the study that has this graphic. The outer circle is um, anybody who's been exposed to suicide. And this could be anybody from somebody who has just knew somebody at work but died by suicide, 
or somebody that was in a large urban high school and they heard that some kid at the high school uh, killed himself, but they didn't know him. They didn't have any personal relationship with him. Um, so anybody who's been exposed, the subway driver that I just mentioned earlier, uh, is somebody who's been exposed to suicidal behavior. Um, the next circle in would be people who are exposed and are, are being affected by it uh, in some way. In other words, they're having some kind of reaction. So this could include the, the subway driver if they develop trauma symptoms. It could include a kid in the urban high school who uh, may not have known the kid that died, um, but has been depressed and suicidal themselves and being exposed to the suicidal behavior of someone else, even if you didn't know about it, but hearing about it uh, may increase their risk for uh, making an attempt. Um, so it's anybody who's having any kind of reaction to, to this news and is distressed or upset about it. The next concentric circle in are people who are, uh, what are having what we might call a short-term grief reaction. And that hasn't been specifically defined yet, but let's just for the sake of argument say it means a year or less. For a while, for several months, uh, up to a year, they are um, having a rough time. They're upset about it. They may be having uh, nightmares about it. They may be crying. They may be having some grief-type reactions. Grief reactions, by the way, imply that there's a loss of a relationship. You did have a connection with the person, and they were important to you um, psychologically. Although I would point out, it doesn't mean you have to have had a personal connection. You know, we know that there are people that have grief reactions and a difficult time when a celebrity dies, or Rob Williams, uh, or Kate Spade, you know, uh, people who identify with that person, uh, or felt that they had a relationship even though they didn't personally know them. Uh, but mostly it's about people that had a personal relationship with a person. And then the, the, the most innermost concentric circle are people who have what we might call a prolonged grief reaction that goes on more than a year, um, may get worse with time, may include trauma symptoms, uh, et cetera. Um, we don't have good data about how many people fit into each of those um, categories. I, I, I mentioned some preliminary data beforehand, but we need a lot more uh, good, careful epidemiological research about that to really be comfortable that we know what those numbers are. Great. And would you argue, based on that idea of those concentric circles, that suicide postvention should be comprehensive? Should it just be targeted towards some individuals? How do you conceptualize it? It ought to be considering everybody in that first circle who's been exposed. It ought to be taken into consideration that anybody in that circle may, be, may need some extra help. But we also know that, that, and the research is beginning to substantiate this, is that people who are not just you know, connected by a kinship. That's one of the takeaways I hope people take from this is it is not just immediate kin, biological kin who are affected, um, uh, but it is also people who felt for whom this was an important person psychologically or emotionally. And to the extent that we can predict that, you know, certainly immediate kin are usually in that category, but if you're in a school setting, you want to pay attention to who are the friends of this kid who died by um, suicide? Who are the people who might identify with that uh, person? So the, 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 the more we go into that those concentric circles, the more we ought to be putting our attention to kind of identifying uh, who those people are in a given social community or setting. If you're talking about a church community, you would think about the, uh, the families that were closely 
had close friendships with the family of the person that lost, uh, that died by um, suicide. Perhaps the minister may be at risk because they may feel responsible in some way, et cetera. So it's a matter of who's who's likely to feel close to the person. I would add to that who who's likely to feel potentially responsible for the death, uh, because that's a unique characteristic of suicide deaths is that people often take uh, huge amounts of responsibility for the death. Yeah, I think that's so helpful when we think about just improving the dissemination about what suicide postvention is to make sure yes. that when folks think about this inclusivity and the fact yes. that absolutely, you know, kinship is one of those defining characteristics oftentimes of who a lo suicide loss survivor is. But thinking about Julie Cyril's work as an example, knowing that approximately 135 people are exposed to each suicide loss means that we really want to be as comprehensive as possible so that we're helping people regardless right. of what their relationship was to that person. Right. Right. Um, right. I think that's right. really helpful getting back to the rationale that you provide at the beginning as to why suicide postvention is so important to suicide prevention as well. Well, kind of broadening from that, now that we have an idea of what suicide postvention is, what the scope of the impact is, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the prominent themes that we know individuals experience after losing someone to suicide. Um, probably the two themes that I, I believe, and I think the literature by and large supports this, uh, uh, that are most prominent after suicide and most differentiate grief after suicide from grief after other kinds of losses. Not that these other other kinds of losses can't produce similar themes, but they're likely to be more front and center after suicide. Are two two issues. One is the why question. Why did they do this? Suicide is a for most for the general public is a mysterious, frightening cause of death. Most of us are we're wired to want to live and most of us want to live as long as we can. And so someone who chooses to die or appears to choose to die um, and brings about their own death is a very mysterious and puzzling thing. And I've seen this over and over and over again in families where they didn't know the person was suicidal, didn't, you know, they were blindsided by it. They spent an enormous amount of um, energy trying to puzzle it out and, and in essence, do a, a psychological autopsy to try to understand what was the state of mind of this person because it doesn't make sense. This is, this is the person I knew who, who wouldn't be doing this. Or wouldn't I have known it if they were thinking about killing themselves? So the why question uh, and what was the state of the mind of the person is, is the first one. The other one is closely related is the responsibility issue. We don't have a good common collective narrative in our culture or our society about why people kill themselves um, uh, because it is a mysterious cause of death for the general public. Um, and so people then fill in that sort of blank space with their own assumptions or beliefs about what they personally could have done or what somebody else should have done to prevent this from happening. Um, and because the, the, the causes of suicide are both complex and often mysterious, people fill in the blanks with very, uh, survivors typically do a tremendous amount of soul searching about what, what could I have done differently? I should have been able to see it coming. I should have done something. Differently. I once had a uh, physician who uh, uh, had lost his son to suicide, 
and he used this very elegant phrase that I've used ever since. He said, I suffer from the tyranny of hindsight. And what he was saying was that, was that I can now see in hindsight some of the things that were leading up to my son's death, but I didn't see them beforehand. But the work to sort of go back and review that and figure that out is very prominent after suicide. In addition to that, it can produce a profound sense of um, can produce a profound sense of anger. Uh, the Latin root for the word suicide literally means self-murder, and if you think about suicide as a kind of murder, suicide produces the anger energy. Can doesn't always can produce the anger energy that homicide produces. And when you think about it, if somebody murdered someone close to you, how would you feel about the perpetrator? You would be furious with them. You know, you'd probably want to murder them or you'd have feelings along those lines. Um, suicide can produce that same kind of anger that it feels like someone murdered my loved one, but damn it, the, the person who did that is the person who died. And so I feel sorry for them also, and it produces a very confusing, complex, contradictory set of emotions in survivors. So it can produce anger. It can produce tremendous feelings of guilt, which I sometimes think of as a kind of anger in oneself. Uh, for not being able to prevent it or see it coming or to have been able to uh, uh, to do more. Certainly, if people are blindsided by it, it can produce a great deal of shock uh, and disbelief in the beginning. Um, although not all suicides are a surprise. Sometimes people have been worried for a long time about the person making the attempt off of the made previous attempts, and so it's not so much of a shock. But I would, from my own ex clinical experience, I would say probably in the majority of cases it is a shock or a surprise uh, to people. Uh, can produce tremendous feelings of helplessness. Um, that I, uh, how could I? Uh, what could I have done? What if there was nothing I could have done? What? How can I prevent it from happening again in my life or to someone who I love? Um, there's the whole issue about shame and stigma that get associated with it. Although this is changing slowly, there still is an enormous history of, of punish, punitive attitudes and punishment towards suicidal behavior. And that punitive attitude extends beyond the person who ended their life. It extends often to the kin uh, of the person or those seen as responsible for the person. And so people can feel stigmatized, ashamed, um, uh, like they, they have failed. Um, and it's a public uh, kind of uh, failure. And then lastly, of course, it produces uh, uh, grief, um, uh, sorrow at missing the person. That happens no matter how someone dies. We miss them and we feel sorrow. But it certainly can happen after we lose someone to suicide. I should also mention trauma symptoms. Particularly, we know if people witness the suicide or if they uh, found the body, um, they're more likely to develop PTSD. But you don't have to be an eyewitness to it to develop trauma symptoms. Um, all you have to know is what the method of death was and your mind kind of forms a picture of what the dying process or the death scene is about. So that could be a part of it also. I think that's a really terrific overview of the different types of themes and reactions that we know to be common um, when after, you know, after losing someone to suicide. Could you tell yep. us a little bit more about how those reactions may or may not change over time or differ 
um, between or across individuals? Sure. There's, I mean, there's tremendous variations. I've known people who were um, furious with the person for telling themselves, and I've known people who said, and I believe them, I've never felt angry with them. I never felt, you know, angry that they did this. Um, so there's there's tremendous variation about how strong and how intense those feelings are. I think the why and the responsibility questions usually are related to how much responsibility the person felt for the other person. So, for example, parents typically feel a tremendous sense of failure or responsibility if they have a child die by um, suicide. Spouses do also, but typically a bit less than parents do. If you have a friend die, it depends on how close you felt you were to them. It's what's your perceived sense of obligation or responsibility for caretaking of the other person uh, was. Um, if you're, if you're, it also has to do, as I mentioned earlier, about whether you were aware that they were in a lot of distress or that they were thinking about suicide. If the suicide feels like it's the sort of culmination of a long downward psychiatric spiral, they've been depressed, they've been um, despondent for a long time, you may not be so shocked or surprised by it. You may feel tremendously sad, but not shocked or traumatized by it particularly. Um, if you were utterly blindsided by it, you're going to be stunned for a while by it, and that, that varies tremendously among people. If you're asking about the sort of short-term versus long-term reaction, we don't have a lot of good long-term follow-up data. Most of the studies are you know, looking at people over the, the course of the first year or so. I can tell you from a, a few studies that one study that I was part of that Bill Fagelman really was the lead researcher on, we found that uh, this was looking at parents who had lost a child to either suicide, drug overdose, or uh, other more uh, natural causes, you know, disease or whatever. That that uh, looking at the parents who'd lost a child to suicide, 10 years later, I think it was about a fifth of, of the parents, about 20% of the parents still reported um, uh, their own thoughts of suicide themselves, which is not uncommon, as well as uh, higher levels of depressive symptomatology than the population in, um, at large. So this is not a short-term, necessarily short-term phenomenon. That's why the concentric circles model, uh, Julie's model, is so helpful is that it suggests that different people are going to have different reactions. And the more, the further we go into that concentric circle, the uh, the, light, the longer the reaction is likely to, uh, the longer the long-term effects of it are uh, likely going to be. Well, thanks so much for that. I think it's really helpful knowing that some of our listeners will have experienced suicide losses themselves, and they may share some, maybe all, of the reactions and things that you talked about, and also knowing that that may change over time, I think can be yes. especially yes. powerful and helpful. Yes. So in that lens, you know, thinking about suicide prevention as one mitigating the risk for suicide in individuals that are exposed or impacted, but also in this lens of providing support and potentially uh, providing uh, grief therapy to those that are most affected. Could you talk to us a little bit more about how suicide prevention can actually assist individuals in post-traumatic growth? Well, first of all, let's let's talk about what what's the scope of what post uh, postvention means. And I, I want to be clear that it is not simply 
uh, therapy from professionals, mental health professionals. Um, one of the most helpful things in my experience for most, not all, one size doesn't fit all, but for most suicide loss survivors is to be able to connect with other survivors in some way. Uh, and that can be in the form of a face-to-face -face bereavement support group. It can be one-on-one -on -one kinds of contact, uh, of, of either informally or through formal programs that connect people one-on-one -on -one with each other. Um, there are now good online uh, ways that suicide loss survivors can connect with one another. I think at the end we'll probably talk a little bit more about those uh, resources. I consider all of that part of post-vention. Uh, so post-vention is not just something that professionals provide for people impacted by suicide. Um, certainly grief counseling and grief therapy is appropriate for anyone who feels they're having a hard time and, and would like some help. Um, and certainly can be appropriate for people in that, particularly that most innermost of the concentric um, uh, circles, uh, which are people who are having a prolonged grief reaction, likely developing complicated grief and sometimes also uh, depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, those are folks that for whom professional intervention is probably required and, and mandated. And in terms of psychoeducation, um, I think the whole community of people who are impacted by suicide, every every suicide death, when it happens in a, in a high school, in a, a community, in a church group, uh, in a workplace setting, every suicide death is an is a teachable moment, is an opportunity to educate people about. Uh, First of all, suicide and psychiatric disorder, what contributes to those things, what do they look like, um, and how do they relate to suicidal behavior. Um, it's a teachable moment about grief in general, but particularly grief after suicide. For example, what I was mentioning in terms of the, the prominence of the why questions and the guilt that people feel and the, the struggle about who's responsible for this. It's very useful for, for someone to explain that the people who've been exposed to suicide. Um, it's very useful for people to get some psychoeducational information about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder um, and what that looks like and how to know if, if you're developing uh, PTSD symptoms, et cetera, who's most likely to develop uh, PTSD-type symptoms. Um, so all of that psychoeducational component is an important part of post-vention, and that could apply to in theory, anybody in the, in the circle of people who have been um, exposed uh, to the suicide. Great. Do you have any thoughts on how that all those pieces that you talked about, psychoeducation, support, kind of connecting people with each other, perhaps some individuals that seek um, assistance via grief therapy or some other form of therapy that can help promote that post-traumatic growth or help people kind of on the journey that lies after a loss? Okay. Well, let's first of all define what post-traumatic growth means. It's a relatively new term um, in the field of, of not just of, of suicide bereavement, but of bereavement and also just in, in trauma studies. Uh, we are realizing that, that trauma is, is a catalyst for people, and it clearly is a catalyst for people having difficulty, um, having a, a diminution of their functioning of their sense of well-being, et cetera. 
but we also are learning that it has the potential to um, create what the field is beginning to call post-traumatic growth. And post-traumatic growth um, usually come, in my experience, usually comes out of having, uh, for lack of a better word, what, what uh, sometimes mental health people call a person's assumptive world, their beliefs about their, their life and life in general, how the world operates, um, and their, their sense of the ability to uh, predict what's going to happen in their the future. All of us have an assumptive world, and our assumptive world are all the things that we take for granted about ourselves and our world and our life, what kind of person we are, our own identity, um, um, uh, who's around us, who's literally who's alive in our, our world and who's not alive, who we can count on, who we can trust, who's reliable and will be available to us um, uh, in our life. Um, and then also what role people will will uh, play for each other. In our center world, very importantly, also includes our expectations about our future, what our life is going to be like with someone or with certain groups of people in the next five years, the next 20 years, et cetera. Um, obviously, death in general can disrupt people's assumptive worlds, but suicides in particular have the capacity to powerfully uh, disrupt people's assumptive world. But when a person's assumptive world um, has been disrupted, it also opens the door for uh, 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 people making changes in their life. And I'll mention what some of those changes may be in a minute. Um, I, the, the metaphor I like to use is it's like having an earthquake happen. And in an instant, you know, your, your house and all the buildings around you have collapsed. And then people have to decide, am I, am I going to rebuild the house exactly the way it was, exactly where it was, or am I going to build a different kind of house? And in what ways do I want to build a different kind of house? Is it going to be in a different place? And how am I going to go about doing that? Um, and so people can people change both consciously and without consciously choosing it or thinking about it in important ways, that some of which can be positive. Um, for example, um, uh, people. Uh, I find that people often uh, uh, awaken to the fact that we live in a world of suffering, um, and most of us, most of the time, like to shield ourselves from that. We don't want to know about the suffering of other people. But when you've had tremendous an experience that produces tremendous emotional, psychological suffering in you, spiritual suffering it awakens you to the fact that there most people have suffering in their life and some people have tremendous suffering in their life, whether it's exactly the same that you had, you know, other people who are survivors uh, or just other kinds of being injured, if you will, psychologically, emotionally injured by life. And so we wake up to that. And I think that's a, that's a form of psychological and spiritual growth. Um, people discover kind of resilience in themselves that they didn't know they had it. They didn't know they had it because it was never called forth. Um, I've had people say to me, you know, if you would have told me five years ago that my son was going to kill himself um, and that I would still be, I would be surviving it five years later, I would have told you you're crazy. You know, I, I don't think, at the time, I don't think I could have survived this. And in fact, when my son did kill himself, I had great doubts about whether I could go on or carry on. 
but I guess I have. I found some way to uh, to do that. People's appreciation for uh, uh, support from other people, how important the love and support of other people is, is never more clear to people than when something like this um, happens to them. Um, so they develop a deeper appreciation about that. And suicide can also both produce a spiritual crisis for people, like how, how could God allow this to happen? You know, I don't, I don't understand. I've been a good person. How could something this bad happen to me in my life? Um, but also it can help people say, well, you know, I guess I have to learn to live with a certain uncertainty uh, in my life. Maybe everything I took for granted in life I can't take for granted. And so people lead a more um, awake, aware uh, life about the fragility of life, and but conversely also the preciousness of life. And all of that can come out of uh, losing someone to suicide, as well as other kinds of traumatic losses for people. I think what you spoke about there really showcases in yet another way the importance of connecting on this topic and, and what it means to think about having the conversation about being inclusive about all of those um, individuals yep. that are exposed as um, I know you have said before that it takes a village to journey with a survivor survivor really shows how important it is to come together to really yes. achieve some of those outcomes you just described there. Yes, yes. I often say to people, uh, often it's men, but it isn't just men that try to cope this way. I, I will say to people, you, you cannot do this all by yourself. You may be trying to do it. I call it to, to John Wayne, you know, to try to, uh, you know, we never saw John Wayne ask for help from anybody uh, in the characters that he um, and so um, um, some people tried it and think they should be able to do it through their own willpower. But we, we realize we can't. We're part of a community, and we need the help of people when we have been injured, psych physically injured or psychologically injured. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good awakening to have, I think. And it does take the support of a community. Um, we know that social isolation after bereavement in increases the risk of uh, developing prolonged grief disorders and, and other complications, mental health complications of, uh, of sudden, unexpected, violent losses of loved ones. Let's turn to talking a little bit more about some of those resources that exist out there for suicide postvention. You had previously mentioned the Action Alliance recommendations. Um, we'll also have a lot of psychoeducation that's provided on this website, Uniting for Suicide Postvention, that we're developing. But what else is out there that exists that you would drag people to? And we can also tag some of these links to some of the things that you described so that if our listeners are interested in checking them out more, it'll be conveniently located here with the podcast. But what else Great. do you suggest in terms of where people can find support, where people can maybe provide support as well? Okay. Okay. Um, I think a, a starting point for most people in the United States would be either uh, an organization called the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, uh, AFSP.org. Um, and that's probably the leading organization in America that is both raising funds for research into suicide prevention and trying to in, uh, you know, increase our suicide uh, prevention efforts. But they're also probably the leading national level organization uh, doing uh, outreach and support 
activities for suicide loss survivors. Their, ex, their website has excellent resources for survivors, including both an online searchable database of bereavement support groups all around the country. Um, and also, um, I have been working with uh, AFSP and the, an organization called the Association for uh, American Association of Suicidology, AAS. Uh, suicidology.org is the uh, website. And, and those two organizations have been sponsoring me and some other people who I'm training to develop a training for uh, mental health professionals specifically around working with suicide bereavement. And I've been doing that for the last uh, few years and, and I have one other person trained who's going to start doing it and then hopefully we'll, we'll be adding to the number of trainers for that. The point of all that is that one of the, the reasons that we're doing this is we are also creating uh, on the AFSP website an online searchable database of mental health professionals who have taken the training, completed the training, and are willing to have their contact information listed. So if you're looking for a therapist who at least cares enough about this issue to have gone and taken a day-long training in it and wants to be listed as somebody in the community who works with suicide loss survivors, that's a good starting place. Again, that's on the AFSP website also. Um, the AAS website has excellent resources for suicide loss survivors also, as well as a list of um, um, an online searchable database of bereavement support groups. Um, I also uh, would encourage people to check with uh, local hospices. Um, hospices sometimes themselves are running, uh, oftentimes are running bereavement support groups, and sometimes if they're a large enough hospice, they will be running a support group specifically for suicide loss uh, survivors. Um, and, and most hospices have what's called a bereavement coordinator, somebody who's in charge of providing bereavement services through the hospice for people that have lost somebody who's been a client in the hospice. But you don't have to have been a client of the hospice or had a loved one die in hospice care to use their services. So check with bereavement coordinators at local hospices and say, do you know of resources for suicide loss survivors in our um, uh, community? There are also some, some, they're not national organizations, but regional organizations. Um, in the Minneapolis area, uh, Minnesota area, there's SAVE, um, Suicide Awareness, Voices of Education, I think it stands for. Um, there's Heartbeat, which is a network of uh, um, uh, survivor support groups in the Rocky Mountain area. In the greater Boston area, um, I've been the consultant for about 10 years to the Samaritans in Boston. And the Samaritans in Boston has, I think, a, a pretty good, uh, pretty fine uh, postvention program that includes support groups, what we call a survivor-to-survivor -survivor network, which is uh, trained teams of uh, survivor volunteers who will go and do home visits with new survivors. Uh, that's one of the cutting edge things is is outreach teams um, that are starting to occur in different programs around the country. Um, Frank Campbell, who's a pioneer in the field of postvention, um, has been training people to uh, work in what he calls loss teams, L-O-S-S, um, all around the country so, so that a number of hospices or 
suicide prevention organizations, uh, et cetera, around the country have lost teams who will come out and do outreach work to new survivors in the community, do home visits, um, et cetera, may even go with the uh, with the police or first responders and meet with family members um, right at the time of the, uh, uh, the suicide. And usually those folks know what the resources are locally in a given uh, community. And then there's the, uh, I did, I think I mentioned the Alliance for Hope, which is a uh, uh, terrific organization. It's an online resource, uh, and it is, uh, has about, I think, 25,000 to 30,000 people who've belonged to it at one time or another. It's an excellent place. It's a message board, essentially, where people can post messages about their experience, read about the experience of other people, and and connect and, and share their experiences with other people. I like it because it's got such a large base of people who belong to it that if you're if you're a mother who's lost her only son and you'd really like to talk to another mother who's lost their only son, um, your best shot at finding that is online at the Alliance of Hope um, as a way of connecting and seeing if you can find somebody specifically who's had a loss similar to you. So it's also a monitored website so that uh, the communications are uh, monitored by uh, uh, clinicians to make sure that they're appropriate and that there's not un harmful or un unhelpful stuff being said to people. So those are resources. Um, um, there are lots of, not, you know, there's, I, it's a reasonable statement. There are lots of uh, first-hand accounts written by survivors uh, about uh, their experience and reading about the experience of other survivors is a way of sort of talking to another survivor without actually having to face-to-face -face, uh, talk to them. Um, there are also probably fewer, but there are some books that are written for um, suicide loss survivors by clinicians or mental health professionals or by uh, uh, survivors themselves, but they're written directly for not just telling their own story, but written filled with good suggestions and ideas about coping. I think that's an outstanding list of different resources that really resonates with the comment that you had mentioned earlier, that one suicide postvention kind of plan or response doesn't fit everyone, so people can kind of pick exactly. and choose different resources. And right, we'll right. Sure and also when they're ready. Not everybody's right. ready in the beginning to do something, um, and so people can do this. We have people that come to our groups in Samaritans, uh, you know, five or ten years later, after the suicide, it's not just you know in the first week or months after the uh, suicide. It's when people feel ready to do that. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that you've provided an amazing and excellent overview about suicide postvention. But wanted to see if there's one other thing that you wanted to leave our listeners with, or perhaps a kind of summary statement to really solidify some of the amazing points that you've made so far. Well, I guess what I would leave is I, what I think of is something I say when I, uh, whenever I, I present to a group of survivors, uh, uh, and this is something that someone said to me in uh, a survivor support group that I was running myself. I ran. By the way, I should have mentioned in the beginning. I I describe myself as a distant suicide loss survivor. I had a great uncle die in 1987 of suicide, and I had a um, one client early in my career who took his life. 
And both of those were sad experiences for me, but they were not what I would call life transformational. I was writing my autobiography. They wouldn't, it wouldn't have chapter after chapter about the impact of those two deaths. What has been inspirational for me um, is, is knowing and working with so many um, survivors and being able to see the resilience in people. And there's a guy that when I was running a group once who said something to me that I've never forgotten, and I repeated every training, training I do, particularly for survivors, but it's useful for clinicians to know and think about. Um, it speaks in some ways to post-traumatic growth also. He said to me at one point, he said, Dr. Jordan, people think when you're grieving, it's like having this heavy boulder put on your shoulders or on your back. And people think uh, at some point you just take that boulder and put it down and you just go on down the road. Like Sort of like grief is like having the flu. You know, it's an unpleasant experience that you get over and and uh, and then you just go back to your life, you know, resume your life as it was before. That's not what happens. It changes uh, people. Losing someone close to you to suicide can be a life-changing experience, as we've talked about, not, not always in negative or harmful ways, but also in growthful kinds of ways. But what he said to me is that uh, you know, people think it's like just putting this boulder down and going on, to, on down the road. He said, that's not what's happening to me, Dr. Jordan. He said, what's happening to me is my back is getting stronger. That's such a, an elegant uh, metaphor about how people heal and how people recover. And so I would try to leave a word of hope for anybody who is a survivor or who's working for survivors is that I've worked with enough people to know that it is possible to heal and to survive this and to even grow from the experience with the right kind of support, with the right kind of um, hard work uh, that people do. People's back can get stronger and they can learn to live with it and even um, uh, make it a part of who they are as they go on uh, with their own life journey. And thank you so much, Jack, for being part of the podcast today. I think for some of our listeners who may be new to this topic, you may have meaningfully contributed to that journey for them and for others who have been on the journey so far. I think your words of wisdom um, can contribute to some of that healing that we've been talking about. So thank you so much for joining us today for this podcast on Suicide Postvention 101. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. This podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivors Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.